Hi, this is Ellie Kushner, and you're listening to Dance Well Podcast. For this episode, I spoke to Dr. Paula Thompson about shame. I first learned of the research on shame in dancers by Drs. Paula Thompson and Victoria Jacques from an article in Dance Magazine. I'm grateful for that article because it sparked an interest in this topic, which percolated for several months, and I found that my investigation of shame brought me a lot of insight about my experiences as a dancer and the experiences of my students. I wanted to know a lot more, and I'm so grateful that this platform, Dancewell Podcast, gives me the opportunity to get more information and get it directly from the expert. Dr. Paula Thompson is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at California State University, Northridge. That's CSUN. She's a licensed clinical psychologist working in private practice in California and is a reliable coder for the adult attachment interview. She is also co-director of the Performance Physiology Laboratory at CSUN, adjunct faculty at Pacifica Graduate Institute, Opera Works faculty and professor emeritus at York University's Departments of Theater and Graduate Studies in Canada. She was a professional dancer herself and continues to work as a choreographer and a movement coach in dance, theater, and opera. Past professional choreographic company work includes Canadian Opera Company, Canadian Stage Company, Stratford Shakespearean Festival, Northern Lights Dance Theater, Ballet Jorgen, and UCLA On the Edge of Chaos. She is the first author of two books, The first is Creativity and the Performing Artist Behind the Mask, and the second is Creativity, Trauma, and Resilience, as well as multiple peer-reviewed research articles. In 2013, she was named one of the top 20 female professors in California, and I'm not at all surprised by that last accolade, since as you'll hear in a moment, she is a clear, compassionate, open, and profoundly intelligent speaker. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological development. And today you are in for Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. So hi, um, Dr. Paula Thompson. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm very interested in this topic and can't wait to learn more. Well, thank you, Ellie, for inviting me, and I'm eager to explore it as well. So we're talking about shame. Could you start by just explaining what that is? I first encountered shame in, in my you know early undergraduate studies of psychology and found it really complicated. I was sort of didn't know what really was meant by shame, and over the years, I've started to understand it a little bit more, especially just recently, and... Um, but I still don't know if I'm on point because my understanding is is more a feeling about it, which is that it's like a mixture of embarrassment and guilt and self-blame. Um, so I don't know clinically or academically if that's at all on point. Could you um, verify and tell us more what is shame? Sure. Um, shame is considered one of the self-conscious emotions and we have our um, primal emotions, anger, fear, uh, joy, those deeply biologically ingrained emotions. But in order to have some of the other ones like shame, embarrassment, guilt, and pride, 
we need to be aware that there is another who recognizes us, which is why it's called a self-conscious emotion. Once we have a sense of consciousness and a self, then we can start to form these other emotions. And it begins very early. Small children are educated by shame. Like they learn that there's certain behaviors you're not supposed to do, and they kind of slump their shoulders and drop their head and kind of pout and feel pretty awful about themselves. And then you engage them in another activity, and they immediately get curious and start exploring the environment. But it's those socially shaming moments where they start to form behaviors that are appropriate for social environments. So it's not a bad thing in and of itself, mm-hmm. but it can be very toxic. Right. It sort of helps us um, be civil humans in, in the best case scenario and leads to right. self-loathing in the worst. Is that true? Right. Yeah. And just to differentiate um, how the literature um, differentiates differentiate shame and guilt, uh, shame is a feeling like your very being is flawed. Mm. Your self is no good versus guilt is that you have let somebody else down. And self-blame for shame, it can manifest in a myriad of ways. One of them is self-blame directed um, as an attack on the self. can also be other blames. So when people are shamed, especially people who are more narcissistically constellated, they will attack another or you can withdraw, or you can completely avoid a situation. So there are different behavioral responses when you feel like your very being is flawed. And disgust, which is a hybrid off of shame, um, is a feeling that you're reviled, that your rejection is because you are that despicable. So it's got a gustatory response to it. Shame doesn't necessarily have to have a gustatory response, but when shame and disgust blend together, then you'll start to see more self-hatred and contempt Mm. emerging. Already in some of these things that you're saying, I'm going right down the path towards dancers. I mean, part of it is that I know when you talk about the self-conscious emotions, you know, you're talking about like the very early toddler development of the other, Mm -hmm. but, but certainly dance is so, can be so fixated on how others will perceive you, right? We spend a lot of time thinking about that. And then also this idea about your very being as flawed certainly is leaning me towards dance. What, what brought you, um, both to the work of shame, you know, a deeper investigation of shame, and then specifically to dancers? Um, it, it was kind of twofold. One, being a dancer, I viscerally knew what it was like to feel shamed. Like, there are countless moments in a dance class when you're getting trained where you feel like your body's changed in adolescence and you don't know who the heck you are anymore, or you go to a, a, a class with a new teacher and you don't know the rules and somehow you've just inadvertently stood in the wrong place. There's umpteen moments where you can feel shame. And 
a lot of the literature was talking about perfectionism in dance. And one of our early studies was that shame may be mediating perfectionism or um, there's that sense of fear of failure. And, and so if you're perfect, then you won't fail. But also, if you're perfect, you won't have to suffer the agony of shame because that's a horrible feeling. It, it may even be easier to feel failure mm-hmm. than shame. Mm-hmm. Why Why do we, as dancers, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, somebody even said the other day that they felt shame that they couldn't make their foot be the right shape that ballet was demanding and like why why do we spin that into shame and why is it so hard I mean I've had to train myself to say it's not there's nothing wrong with you your foot doesn't make that shape (laughs) like why why is that not more natural to just say oh you've never been in this studio before you don't know the policy it's okay, you stood in the wrong spot. Why don't we say that to ourselves? Yeah. I know our environment's pretty um, judgmental. Even if it's implicitly judgmental, you, you, you feel it. And part of dance, because it's an art form where our body is the instrument, um, the body objectification thing, it, it's definitely in social media in a massive way now. But we don't view it as a subjective thing. It's an object. Mm -hmm. And we're told it's our instrument. So we start to view it from the outside. And then if it's not how it's supposed to be ideally, then there's something wrong with us. So we internalize that subjectively, but we evaluate objectively. And in one of our studies, we actually found that unlike rhythmic gymnasts who are also aesthetically uh, driven, they could ignore pain, but the dancers, they they were a matched group. The dancers actually felt like they didn't own their body, that it was owned by the choreographer or the company, that they weren't the owner of their own body. And that was horrifying. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what else did you find in your um, research? What what were some of your other findings? Um, we found that uh, more um, shy dancers, because we looked at shyness, are vulnerable to shame until they feel comfortable in the environment, and then they're less shy and they're less vulnerable to shame. And high anxiety uh, dancers are more vulnerable to shame, and the sense of social evaluation, social appraisal in the dance world, like do you get picked at the audition? Do you get picked to be in the front line? Do you get picked to demonstrate something? There's an inherent evaluatory process in dance, which I don't think we can get rid of. Right. We have to normalize it, but that increases the stress that we're living with, whether it's perceived or real and that can amplify anxiety and once anxiety is amplified shame can follow on its heels gosh this is so rich i'm like (laughs) um there's so much to talk about here um this idea of not owning their bodies did you 
unpick that more from a, or do you have a even an a, an idea a more did you flesh that out personally if not in your research um we did flesh it out in our research and and then personally and anecdotally just talking because I'm around dancers all the time but in our research uh, dissociation is um, where certain parts of a self or an identity are not integrated you kind of feel like if you're in a depersonalized state you're outside watching yourself if you're in a derealized state the world looks a little dreamlike if you um, have different facets of yourself that feel separate and we have it in our language so it's kind of on a continuum like part of me wants to do this but Mm -hmm. part of me doesn't you know if that starts to separate even a bit more then um, it increases the anxiety and that sense of a loss of self-identity then makes the self more fragile Mm -hmm. vulnerable to all kinds of things I would imagine including exactly so then you dissociate and then you miss the combination and then you feel disoriented and then you feel more anxious then you dissociate because you start to just go off Mm -hmm. I mean you can Mm -hmm. see young kids just go off in a little trance or daydream it's a very protective mechanism for anxiety or boredom but right Right. Usually not boredom and dance. And, and no, it's fashion. usually not. It's usually like when they get overwhelmed and you, yeah, in, in young ones, you can see it. Their eyes just sort of glaze over. Yeah. I, I, this is a bit off track, but I have been thinking with the students a lot lately about how there isn't a lot in dance training to develop the ego. Like it's very, um, you know, just push those feelings down and look neutral and look positive. Of course, I'm speaking of very specific dance forms here. I mean, I Mm -hmm, grew up in mm -hmm. ballet and contemporary, you know, modern dance, Mm -hmm. but, um, and that I see that lately as sort of contributing to that dissociation or that separation of self, you know, because it starts to be very like, they, they're not, they don't keep coming back to that root of like, who am I and what do I want and what do I need right Right. now? Right. Right. And it's it's a weird thing because on one hand, we learn very quickly how to compartmentalize. Uh, you leave your problems at the door, you show up at the bar, um, which makes you then very task-focused or problem-oriented. Mm-hmm, which can be very good. adaptive. Because if you're sitting there in, in all of the emotional orientation, you're not going to function as well. But mm-hmm. then somehow we get so pushed into that task-driven thing that we're not finding our authentic impulses. And I think that's why the dancers felt like they didn't own themselves. Our, our own natural impulses or instincts, we learn to mute, unless we're doing improvisation, in which case we're good at it. And there's that line that the body doesn't lie, mm-hmm. but I really think dancers are excellent liars yeah. in their body. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in psychology, uh, we're often looking at corollary situations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so we, um, we know that there's this correlation, uh, that dancers are higher in shame, right? 
mm-hmm. on some of your findings. Mm-hmm. And um, but it's hard to know if uh, dance has produced shame or if people who are prone to shame are drawn to dance, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Do you have any um, any ideas on that or opinions or data? Um, I have opinions. It's hard to get uh, empirical evidence mm-hmm. because you'd have to do longitudinal. Mm-hmm. And um, to find somebody who has trait shame is really hard because it, it's usually one of those aggregate experiences that then start to shape personality, but I don't think we're born that way. So somewhere in the environment... Um, it gets triggered enhanced. or something, yeah. Yeah, like children with a lot of uh, childhood maltreatment are more vulnerable to shame-inducing experiences. People with PTSD, when they're triggered, they may feel that shame because they weren't able to protect themselves or they were rendered helpless. It goes hand-in-hand. Hand. But the antidote to shame, which we can build equally as strongly, is compassion for self and other, and curiosity. So again, shame in and of itself doesn't have to be problematic if we're cultivating those other things. And I'm not sure that some of the dance environments nurture self and other compassion or curiosity. Like even just to say, oh, let's figure out why you're falling out of that turn. It's not like you're a bad person, you fell out of the turn. It's like, Let's all figure out what's going on. Yeah, let's just explore it and see what happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're using more of that languaging that invites and allows and opens. And the old school dance teachers, I mean, I'm, I was trained that way. They weren't that way. Right. It's very somatic what you're saying. You know, that's, that's a, a lot of, those are a lot of the tenets of somatics, right? To exactly. invite and allow and explore um, and certainly yep. it does seem like somatics are really continuously working their way more and more into um, even the most stringent and rigid of dance forms. <laughs> yeah. I, I really think the more it integrates into the technical training, the better. Yeah. Um, we, we've already acknowledged that a lot of what we're talking about here is um, ballet and, of course, that reflects generally dance science, right? Um, mm-hmm. The bulk of the research is in either mm-hmm. ballet or contemporary um, students. So do you, do you think that there are some forms of dance? You've mentioned improvisation. Do you think there are other forms that are better about um, developing self-compassion and other compassion and curiosity and um, you know, reducing perfectionistic tendencies and all of that, therefore um, reducing the tendency to set off shame in dancers? Um, <clears throat> I think even a few years ago I would have said yes. And I may be biased because I'm in L.A., but social media has made it very objectifying Mm-hmm. the body and mm-hmm. performance. So in LA, hip hop and commercial dance, I mean, 
if you go to a class in L.A., they have selfies, they have video, you try to get by the a hot choreographer. They're basically audition classes, and everybody wears their uh, paraphernalia, and then it's posted in a nanosecond. Uh, ballroom dance, highly, highly body objectifying. Mm-hmm. Um, the huge push with competition dance, highly body objectifying. So, what about things in the African diaspora besides hip hop? I wonder. I would think it's more communal. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the Asian ones, that's really like shame in China and Japan is ubiquitous with their culture on some level. Right. Um, I know we have a lot of uh, classical Indian dancers. And there, there's a certain standard, and if they fail, it's not good. Like they feel that pressure. Right, right. That can come, yeah, it can come culturally. Yeah. Just as easily, even if the dance form doesn't maybe seem as perfectionistic. Although a lot of those South Asian or Asian forms are very specific and perfectionist you know it's maybe not as absolutely um, (laughs) the legs aren't high but the precision is utmost yeah i mean maybe the the um ciphers in street dance Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are are inviting and that's more of the um african uh, influence um and and a lot of the um like salsa and those latin dance flavors that I think there's less judgment on them. It's more celebratory mm-hmm. when they're not in the ballroom judgment. Right. Well. Right. Right. Um, ever in it. So I was saying at the beginning that in the past couple of years, I've started to um, understand this shame idea a little bit more and a little bit more. And I'm starting to see it rear its head in all kinds of situations. Um, Particularly, I find when there's any effort underway to change tradition. So, you know, I'm in dance science, so that could be like Mm -hmm. um, adapting protocols and changing policies or um, addressing racial bias or cultural biases um, Mm -hmm. or questioning. So it's like right now it's even happening in my personal life, like questioning certain repertoire and um, deciding if it's appropriate in 2019. And I see, uh, I've started to see that the resistance that people have to these changes is often rooted in shame. And it's like they feel so bad that they can't just acknowledge what went wrong and address it and move forward. Mm-hmm. So shame seems to really limit people's ability to develop and move forward. Um, is that right? Is that true? Yeah, when shame is at its toxic levels, same with um, any of these, like depression or anxiety. There's a, a rigidity and a loss of uh, flexible adaptation. So it gets more and more entrenched. There's also a fear of being disenfranchised, uh, feeling like you're becoming irrelevant, which can increase shame. 
but all of them are rigidifying a psyche, if you wish. Mm-hmm. And creativity, by its nature, needs to be flexible. It needs to be adaptive. Yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, so again, going back to that antidote of other compassion and self-compassion and curiosity, you know, and that, um, like the white guilt thing, you know, that you can be so paralyzed by the shame and the guilt that, you know, you need to remind yourself like, oh, right, I I just, I need to be curious about how others are feeling and others are experiencing this. And I need to try to see it from their perspective and feel compassion for them. And um, so it's that antidote works there doesn't it yeah it does and any any of those pathologies pushed to the extreme start that perseverating loop and ruminating and Mm -hmm. then you lose track of the world and the other because you're so circled in in this self negative talk and that inner critic then starts to shut down even more curiosity that becomes very problematic for an artist. Um, you've just said a couple times how it's so disruptive to creativity. So I would imagine that, like, yeah, creative blocks and burnout are probably um, mm-hmm. negative effects of this. And, of course, mm-hmm. I'm thinking eating disorders for dancers. Yes. What are some of the other, or could you expand on any of those, what are some of the other negative outcomes when shame gets out of control? Eating disorders are high on the list. Depression, mm-hmm. burnout, as you've already said, increased risk for injury because mm. that ruminating, you're not, you're not physically, kinesthetically aware. You're dissociating. just emotion. Yeah, exactly. And then it just takes a little nanosecond of you checking out and something happens. Or disorienting on stage forgetting sequencing yeah i'm i'm going back to the somatic thing with that actually because a lot of somatic techniques um emerged from like fm alexander had sort of a paralyzing stage fright you know like couldn't couldn't Mm -hmm. vocalize on stage and um Mm -hmm. i think some other forms as well came out of that so it's yeah that's interesting that they found that sort of somatic curiosity, self-compassion, self-exploration as the way out of um, stage fright or dissociation or separation. Yeah. And there, I mean, in Alexander, the premise of stop, notice, and redirect, it's, it's what cognitive behavioral therapy is doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's truly at the heart of all of that and if someone who's really shame-based can stop that perseverating thinking notice that they're doing it and then redirect outward and say all right how does this step go what's this musicality immediately you're breaking those deep patterns obviously if they're more practiced or the person's not able then they get more entrenched but with Younger kids, college kids, they can break that patterning. Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's talk about other things that um, we can do to either 
um, ameliorate it once it's started or prevent it from starting. Um, our, a lot of our listeners, we think, we don't really know. This is the thing with podcasts. Mm-hmm. You don't really know who's listening, but um, <laughs> we think <laughs> out there that you are um, sort of in the practitioners, dance teachers um, sector mostly, but researchers and dancers. So particularly for those populations, um, how can we work to reduce these shameful feelings or prevent triggering them? Um I am passionate about this one particular area in psychology, and that's attachment and attachment research. And because shame, guilt, embarrassment, pride, they're all self-conscious emotions, attachment is a relational field. That's how we grow up. And when we are in a secure enough relationship with our primary caregivers that then gets internalized and it gets expanded into other settings. If we can create those environments where we feel valued, where we can be open, where we can explore, where there's a balance of, yes, this is good, this is not good. They're just realities and facts. They're not attributes of the self, that secure attachment environment, if it's generalized into dance education, creates a community that has security within it, and it becomes a place where you can really develop and be creative. It's where small children can explore the world, because if you're anxious about your attachment relationships, you can't explore. When you're not anxious about them, you can explore. And I think that goes straight into the studio. So I know at Cal State Northridge, because um, we're in L.A., it's a highly competitive place. Uh, for from my standards, I don't want people talking badly about others, and we address it straight up. And we openly discuss when somebody's scared or when somebody's uncertain and who can buddy up with them and help and the, the studio then becomes their safe place on campus instead of a place of threat. And I think we can foster those environments. I really do. Um, I, I was nearly laughing thinking about um, having an attached relationship to my, some of the dance teachers that are in my history. Yeah. I mean, it's like laughable that I should feel secure in their value of me and trust of right. me as a person um right but I you know I have a toddler so I am uh, familiar with attachment theory in a very uh intimate way right now um and I I so feel you or I understand what you're saying and I have a couple ideas about that one is that like a big challenge um in attachment parenting is that sort of letting go right to like you create the Mm -hmm. secure base and then you trust that that is secured and you allow them to go out and then come back and then Mm -hmm. go out and then come Mm -hmm. back um and go out and make mistakes and you know hurt themselves and fall down Mm -hmm. or you know get rejected Mm -hmm. or whatever and then come back and one thing I mean I I feel that a lot of students have not experienced that 
right now, I feel like a lot of them are very fearful of um, mistakes because they haven't had that opportunity. Right. Go out, make those mistakes, and then discover that they're fine and they got through it and they're okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you say that that's true right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are hopefully in every dancer's uh, training, those few people that are mentors for them that they can go back to and ask questions or share an experience that there's a base that they can spring from and return to. And, you know, it may be early in their career. It may be throughout their career. Those figures are really important. Yeah. How do we, can you talk more about what, what it looks like? I mean, you started to with that addressing um, any sort of bullying or um, negative talk head on. But also, I mean, it is challenging because we are trying to push students mm-hmm. and get them to do things that might be uncomfortable. You know, it's finding the balance between uncomfortable because it's challenging versus unsafe and threatening, right? Trying right, to find right. that balance. And, you know, I would imagine that a big part of that is like letting them know that you have unconditional respect for them and regard for them as humans. Um, yeah. But how, how do we find that balance of, you know, pushing them and challenging them, but also we don't want to make them too comfortable because that's not attachment theory, right? That Then they're so comfortable no, that they're not no. taking any risks, no. right? So how do we No, they have to still that? be motivated to, to explore. And, you know, um, at, at Cal State Northridge, we're so far behind we're ahead because dance never <laughs> left kinesiology. Mm-hmm. So the greater majority of our students are kinesiology majors, dance option. Mm-hmm. And what has proven really valuable in the training of this group of students is the body is the body. There are certain muscles, there are certain levers, there are certain biomechanical principles, there are certain um, ways that your body and this other person's body have to adapt to the similar task. And we use dance science to puzzle these things out, and somehow it takes the curse off of them not having the perfect this, that, or the other thing because they're looking at it as a scientific um, variable in in terms of improving and enhancing human performance. And it's the culture that they're around. They, they use anatomical terms. They understand how the muscles are attaching. And just that slight shift to that more objective scientific approach opens up a lot of exploration without them feeling like I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, um, and I actually had one kid cry this semester. She was so sweet. But, um, you know, she was told she was in her little ballet class and she had turned 13 she started developing and her ballet teacher said your body's too tight you can never be a dancer if you want to do any dance go do hip-hop because they all have tight bodies so she loves dance and she's doing hip-hop but she's taking 
because uh, she's a kinesiology major, she's taking um, modern dance, and we're doing Lamone, and was talking about, you know, getting the head of the femur in the socket and feeling it bend and, and how it can articulate and shortening the lever. All of that stuff made sense, and her leg went above 90. Mm-hmm. And she started to cry. She said, mm-hmm. I was told I could never do that. I said, well, your teacher didn't understand anatomy. It's like, and created a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> Absolutely. So here's this little kid who's actually quite gifted as a Lamone dancer. That objective perspective. I mean, we were talking earlier about the danger of objectifying the body, but how an, mm-hmm. sometimes a more objective lens can actually reduce that objectification. Um, yeah, it's a paradox, isn't it? Because yeah. it's not the the um, social media objectification mm-hmm. of these artificial ideals. It's how does the body work scientifically, biologically. And also it's that deep inquiry, right? It's like that curiosity that yeah. you talked about as the antidote, um, that sort yeah. of delving deeper. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a student this semester tell me, you know, she was shocked when she discovered that she had 12 ribs on each side of her body. She, she, she thought she had four. She literally was like, I don't know, four? I thought there were like four of them. And I just thought like, wow, that's really going to change your dancing to know that, you know. <laughs> but it, but it, it so exemplifies how they've lived in these bodies and moved them and worked them and paid attention to them without really knowing some of the most fundamental bits and pieces and how that, I I mean, it definitely just blew her mind and opened her up to a willingness to learn more. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that creates a safe environment of learning. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think all that stuff that you, I mean, I, I'm finding that I have to articulate things that I maybe underestimated the importance of. Um, so things, you know, just recognizing that, oh, this is a, a population that's vulnerable to shame and I need to be particularly explicit and knowing and letting them know that this isn't as you said, because it's not because your very being is flawed. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I feel like um, both in my own words, so things like you've already talked about, um, you know, just making sure that we give corrections as like, let's investigate this. Oh, dance training never taught you this because you didn't get there yet, but now we're here right. and we need to learn this. Let's explore it, you know, and just really pulling it off of them as their fault and um you mentioned earlier the the self-talk issue which definitely seems like a big part of this to me I Mm -hmm. even I I told my students when I handed back exams that didn't go well you know it's like you you have to look at this and say this is what I got and this is what I did and I'm still a good person this is not a reflection on who I am as a person it just is an indicator that I need to change my study habits. <laughs> you know, we had like a whole pep yes. talk about what I needed them to say when they looked at those scores. And I really think it helped. Oh, for sure. And also to look at at the why, like if they feel shame because they didn't study enough or they don't know how to organize their daily schedule or, or umpteen number skills they haven't mastered yet, then it becomes an opportunity to say, all right, what, what skill is lacking here so you can accomplish your goal? 
the shame the shame is right. You feel badly because you you're lacking a skill. But it's so, a skill, so you can acquire it. <laughs> exactly. <practice. laughs> In, instead of just sitting in the shame for a long while, like okay, let's get a skill. Yeah, yeah. and again, so, it, it takes so long. Why does it take so long to figure that out for some of us? <laughs> oh, a lot of the students that I'm noticing, they're just very sad at. <laughs> at organizing and prioritizing. And, you know, I had one student who I actually said she didn't hand in a couple of assignments, missed attending a concert, and it's in the, it's in the syllabus, been announcing it at the beginning of every class. And she came up and she said, what am I going to do? And I said, well, first of all, you look like you're really embarrassed about this situation. And second of all, that would be the appropriate feeling because what do you think I was saying at the beginning of every <laughs> class? How come it didn't apply to you? Mm-hmm. And she said, I do that in all my classes. I said, well, then that's a good thing to start figuring out. That's a good thing to change. Yeah. So that was truly normalizing. All right, it's cutting across all settings. Let's find a way to change this. But I didn't want her to not feel badly because she should. Right, Right, which goes back to creating that environment that is um, authentic and real and gives students true feedback Mm -hmm. without demoralizing them at the same time. Right. Well, you're offering a way to get out of that problem. Right, right. Yeah. And modeling the problem solving, which is the task oriented problem solving instead of falling deeper in the emotional hole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. When I um yeah. when I first started this podcast, I listened to my first episode and of course was not happy with what I heard because who likes their sound the sound of their voice initially, right? Um And I had to give myself a little pep talk. Like, I had to be like, it's okay. It will get better. You'll practice. (laughs) Yeah. And again, like that, that's taken me like three decades to get to that point of, yeah, not just sort of feeling so bad and getting stuck in that emotional place and that ruminating loop and that sort of um, ineffective place. So. And I don't, I don't think it evaporates with time. I, I think because we are social creatures, mm-hmm. we're always vulnerable to the social self-conscious emotions. It's just part of life. Yeah. But it's finding the resilience to recover. Is there anything else that you want to say about it? That's a... Um a great line there about finding the resilience to recover. Um, anything else that you want to leave us with in terms of thoughts about shame? Um, I just want to say that there are some resources. Um, uh, Gladrielle Watson in Dance Magazine wrote an article, Shame on Me, Why Dancers Shame Themselves and How They Can Manage It. And it's, um, I think it was, uh, I don't know, six months ago in Dance Magazine. And then in our book, Creativity and the Performing Artist Behind the Mask, there are recommendations on how to have a performing arts career and how to manage 
the inner critic and shame and all of the other things that go along with the performing arts. And then Kathleen Gaines has a website mm-hmm. called um, wearemindingthegap.org, and she's very, very actively engaged in dancer mental health and did a whole series on dancer mental health and is doing a survey about that right now. But she's got that website, wearemindingagap.org. And what she's trying to do is build resources, psychological resources for dancers so that we don't feel like we're immune or we have to suffer in isolation. And it's, again, that notion that we're part of a community. And that social construct of these emotions can also be normalized in social settings that allow it and allow us to recover. So, yeah. And where can we find more of your research? Uh, A lot of it was synthesized in the two books. Uh, Creativity in the Performing Artist is completely on performing artists, but then the second book, it's like a giant review of the most recent literature called Creativity, Trauma, and Resilience. And in the resiliency section, actually in the trauma one as well, there's lots of discussions on shame. And the creative process, whether it be through um, the somatic therapies or the art therapies or expressive therapies or just engaging in the creative process, uh, whether it's choreographer or composer, uh, scientist, that process is a form of resilience and it gives uh, meaning and it gives a sense of well-being. It's fraught with anxiety. It's fraught with insecurities and uncertainties Mm -hmm. that's part of the creative process but you learn to tolerate that as you're engaging in that creative process and I really think our schools are not nurturing that enough with the focus on the sciences science does not have to be Mm anti-creative for sure um we will share all of those resources on our um, website. And do you also want to share your contact info for anybody who wants to get in touch? Surely, yes. They can email me um, at paula.thompson at csun.edu. Um, yeah, for sure they can reach out to me. And I can send um, PDF of articles we've done and things like that. And we're continuing to do all of this research got a very large data set fantastic um so we'll put that email in the show notes and i just can't thank you enough this has really been um an education for me i uh, my brain is zipping off in a million different directions right now from so many things that you said and um i just really appreciate this conversation And I really thank you for doing this and for reaching out. It's fantastic what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Our pleasure. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. 
To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to DanceWell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search DanceWell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.